This is Winning Streaks with Alan Stein Jr. Welcome to Winning Streaks. I'm your host, Tanvir Mustafa, and every week I get deep into the stories and strategies of experts, champions, business moguls, and industry leaders to find out how you can win the day and win at life. If you're committed to never settling for the status quo and consistently challenging yourself to new heights, then this is the show for you. In return, I commit to bringing you insightful, practical, and no BS conversations that will help you create your next big win. Today is a very special day. It's the day that I've relaunched my podcast to be called Winning Streaks. There was a lot that went into this decision, and maybe I'll discuss that in another episode, but I had to launch this particular interview today for special reasons you'll discover soon. If you want to support this podcast, the best thing you could do is subscribe so you know when future episodes come out and leave a review on your platform of choice. It really would mean the world to me. As I said, it is a special day. It is 8 slash 24. August 24th, which is unanimously being dubbed Kobe Day. And what better way to celebrate Kobe Bryant than by bringing on one of the special individuals that helped shape Kobe's legacy. Alan Stein Jr. is a world-renowned coach, speaker, and author. He spent more than 15 years working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet and now teaches audiences how to utilize the same strategies in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He has trained and worked with the likes of Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, and most famously, Kobe Bryant. Allen specializes in improving individual and organizational leadership, performance, and accountability. He inspires and empowers everyone he works with to take immediate action and improve mindset, habits, and productivity. Allen knows how to win. Let's find out how he does it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Winning Streaks. We have veteran basketball performance coach and renowned speaker, Alan Stein Jr. on the show today, and I couldn't be more pumped. Alan, thanks for coming on to the show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm equally pumped. We're going to have a fun conversation. It's going to be great. And, you know, first off, I want to congratulate you. You just signed a deal for your second book, Sustain Your Game, um, which I'm super excited about. You already released a book called Raise, Raise, Your, um, Raise Your Game, yep. which is all about how to elevate you know, performance to a high level and keep high performance habits. Um, and now the sustain your game coming out. What inspired you to, to write these particular books? Well, as far as raise your game is concerned, you know, I've been a voracious reader since I graduated college and have just been devouring books at a pretty good clip, you know, for the past 20 plus years. And a good portion of the books that I've always been attracted to have been in that personal development space. Uh, they, they're within a few degrees of, of leadership and high performance and, and, and building winning cultures and teams and so forth. So uh, I've always had a really high respect for authors and for books because I, I know what an impact they've had on me. Uh, so the first reason I wrote Raise Your Game uh, was kind of a, a legacy bucket list item. And I thought, man, if I could write something, if I could curate all of the lessons that people have taught me and I could put those into a book and those could be of value to someone else, 
that would be a pretty cool thing. I, I'd be very proud to, to put my book on a bookshelf with some of the books that I've read that have influenced me. Uh, so that was the first reason. Uh, the second reason, at that same time, I was leaving the basketball performance training space and beginning a career as a keynote speaker. And I was leaving an area where I had developed pretty decent name recognition and credibility, and I was jumping over to a space where I had none. And I figured that being a published author and writing a book would actually help with some of that credibility that, that someone would think, oh, this guy's written a book on performance. I'm sure he can speak on performance. So yeah, let's give it a shot. And, and that actually helped tremendously. And, and still to this day is one of my number one sources of speaking leads is somebody reads the book and says, you know, man, we'd love you to deliver this message to our team in person. Um, so those are the main reasons for writing Raise Your Game. And I really enjoyed the process. You know, as, as you can probably imagine, writing a book is a lot of work. Uh, marketing and promoting a book is an equal amount of work, but I really enjoy doing, doing both of those things. And, you know, in the last few years since writing Raise Your Game, because I'm such a student of life and a student of performance and leadership, you know, I've learned more stuff and I'm ready to put out a follow-up book. And Raise Your Game was how you can elevate your performance. Sustain Your Game is how can you sustain that for a long period of time without having a dip in your performance and without getting burnt out or complacent. So uh, it'll take uh, about a year from this recording is when the book will actually come out. I'm working on the manuscript now that's due in May of 2021. And then the book will most likely come out in summer of 2021. So uh, I'm actually looking forward to having something to work on for the next year. I love that. And I'm super pumped for it. I'll be putting Raise Your Game in the show notes. And, you know, when Sustain Your Game comes out, I'll definitely be putting it out there as well. And it looks like from it looks like the cover of Raise Your Game is right behind you uh, there. There we go. Um, it sure is. For those of you watching <laughs> on video. And you've got a lot on the, that wall behind behind you for those listening. Um, so much work done in the NBA. Your passion for basketball is, is, you know, second to none. And you've done a lot of coaching with players like Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and... Uh, Oh, I'm going to get a bit emotional, but you have, uh, yeah. you know, Kobe, Kobe on there. And um, I don't know if you can see here, but I actually have Kobe year written here. So oh, yeah. um, Kobe actually uh, passed the day before my birthday. Oh, man. Um, and it was, uh, it was my also my Kobe year. So, so 24. Yeah. And, uh, you know, out of all the, the influencers out there, sports, celebrities, you name it. Kobe uh, is argu arguably had the biggest impact on me. You know, I have his Mamba Mentality book sitting, sitting somewhere close by, was, was looking at it earlier. And, you know, you had a very unique experience of getting to see what Kobe is like up close and personal. You got to work with him, uh, particularly for the first time, I believe in 2007 at the Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. Now, I've always been fascinated, you know, by the Mamba Mentality, by... Um, you know, the things that he stand, stands for. For me, Kobe was like the greatest of all time, in my opinion, because yeah. I, didn't, I didn't grow up with Jordan. I didn't grow up with LeBron. LeBron came a little bit later. But the thing about Kobe too was that no matter what, you know, broken thumb, torn ACL, he shot free throws on an ACL. He always showed up. Now, I want to know from your perspective, you know, what was that opportunity like to experience Kobe up close? And in your eyes, what is the Mamba mentality? Well, I think you just nailed a big portion of the mama mentality, and that is you always show up and you show up ready to compete and you show up ready to be the best version of yourself. And, you know, uh, we can leave it to the talking suits on ESPN to argue who the best player of them is. We don't even need to get into that. But I don't think anyone can argue that he got every ounce of his potential out and left it on the floor. And uh, for the reasons that you just described, 
You know, he was going to play through some massive injuries. You know, he was going to play whether the Lakers were on top of the world and winning championships or when they were struggling. You know, he never hid from an opportunity to compete. And I do think that is a big part of the Mamba mentality. Uh, but the other part of that, which I think is even more exceptional for him, was his ability to prepare to compete. You know, he wasn't just Kobe Bryant when the lights came on and the cheerleaders started dancing and the TV cameras started rolling. He did so much more during the unseen hours that preceded that so that he was, in, he was prepared to perform at the highest level possible. And, you know, he would work all hours of the day and night. Uh, he would focus on mastering the basics and the fundamentals. You know, there was never anything that was beneath him. And it was all done in order to win. You know, it, it's funny because um, unfortunately, many people had pegged him as a selfish player. And I actually don't think he was a selfish player. I think he did whatever he needed to do for the team to be successful. And for many of the teams he was on, that meant he was the number one scoring option. I mean, they needed him to take 20 to 25 shots a game in order for them to have a chance. So I think he was a, a brilliant competitor, someone that really appreciated the preparation process. And, and I think when you put all of that together, you know, that's, that's where you start to develop this Mamba mentality, which certainly was second to none. Uh, and there's no question, you know, I could rattle off a dozen players right now, and I never would because I don't believe in diminishing people, but a dozen players that if they had just a fraction of the Mamba mentality, they would have been Hall of Famers. And instead, they were just mediocre players at best. So his mentality uh, is the reason that, that he's on the Mount Rushmore of, of all-time players. Right. And you tell this incredible story, and you've told it many times, about um, kind of meeting Kobe at the gym early in the morning. And uh, I know you've said it so many times, but I just, I just think every time I hear it, it's extremely powerful. And can you explo explain what happened that morning uh, that you, you know, got to see Kobe Bryant work out? What I'll do, I'll, I'll kind of give you the shortened version of it. Cause I think if, uh, if you put in the show notes, a link to one of the videos that'll actually, when I'm in front of a live audience on stage, I think it'll be a much better effect for your listeners. But yeah, in 2007, when I, I worked his Kobe Bryant skills Academy, uh, I had an opportunity to go watch him at a really early morning workout. Uh, I mean, it was so early that I got to the gym at 3.30 and thought I would beat him to the gym. And he was already in the gym in a full sweat. And this is 3.30 in the morning, mind you. And, and I just remember being so surprised that he was working on very basic movements and very basic fundamentals. I mean, he spent the first 10 minutes without a ball doing a variety of footwork and pivoting drills. And, you know, the next 10 to 15 minutes, he never took a shot. He was doing different uh, exercises and drills to square up to the basket and make sure he was always on balance and use either foot. And I just remember being amazed that the best player in the world was, was willing to be committed to doing such basic movements. And it gave me such a, a strong appreciation and respect for him but for in my own life, making sure that I'm always sticking to the fundamentals. And uh, at camp later that day when I asked him and, and point blank said, you know, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? His answer was, well, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And I just remember sitting there thinking, wow, you know, this is somebody that is the best in the world at his craft, you know, truly mastered his craft and his secret is that he doesn't get bored with the basics. And I think anyone listening to this, if you're being honest, you, you would admit that many times the basics can be boring. They get monotonous, they get mundane. And it's mm -hmm. very, the temptation to skip over them is very appealing. 
But if you want to be great at something, you've really got to, to press down on those fundamentals. And I've, I've tried to take that with me in everything that I do, whether it's writing a book or speaking or uh, speaking on stage. You know, I realize that the only way I can get good at either one of those things is if I respect the basics and really stay true to the fundamentals. I'm super curious about that and such an incredible and powerful lesson, but you're right. Like we do get bored. I know for me in particular, like uh, I know what's important to do, for example, resistance training, but I do get bored of weights pretty quickly. I like playing sports. I like to box. I like MMA. Like those are the things that I like to get up and do. I like to skip. Um, but that's why I'm always transitioning from different types of workouts all the time is because I, you know, different things activate me at different moments in time. However, um, I think there's, there's a, um, it's important to be able to do things that you don't necessarily enjoy or that you get bored of. How do you go about coaching people through that and kind of pushing them towards creating a sustainable uh, routine for things that we're bored of? Do you, you know, is it about making it enjoyable or is it about just kind of sucking it up and, and taking it forward? You know, it's, it's a little bit of everything. First and foremost, everyone is going to uh, have a different way of how they perceive that. So the way that I would recommend someone do it, I'd first have to get to know them and what are their true motivations and, and what is the best way to push their buttons. Uh, but keep in mind too, you don't necessarily have to love the thing that you're doing if you love what that thing enables you to do enough. And I think that's probably even the way that Kobe looked at it, although that's pure speculation because I never asked him. I'm not implying that he loved doing pivoting drills without a ball. I am implying that he loved having flawless footwork, which allowed him to do some pretty incredible things on the basketball court, which allowed him to win games and win championships and make a lot of money. You know, so he liked the end result that those things allowed him to do. You know, in your case, you might not like the actual act of strength training, but you might really like the way that it makes you look or the way that it makes you feel, or how it actually increases your ability to do MMA or to box or to do some of the other things that you really like. You know, if you realize that, hey, if I take 30 minutes a day and I do these core strength work, these strength workouts, it allows me to be better at the thing that I really love doing. And, and, and I think if you focus more on that and less on what you actually have to do, so you're not viewing it as manual labor, uh, that's a part of it. Uh, the other thing is I'm a big believer in doing little things over time will give you a big result. So, you know, in, in Kobe's case, if you do 15 minutes of basic footwork every day, your footwork will get really, really good. You know, we're not talking about doing, you know, four hours of pivoting drills. He did it for 15 minutes, but he does that every single day of his life. Same thing. You know, if you were to do a, and I'm just obviously making this up, you know, a, a hundred push-ups and 30 pull-ups and 50 air squats every day, that might take you 15 minutes to do it. But if you do those most days of the week, you would start to see an increase in your muscular fitness and endurance. And certainly if you love MMA and boxing enough, uh, you're willing to make that sacrifice for 15 minutes a day. So I think it's just on how you choose to view it and how to perceive it. And, you know, the other thing is, you can also uh, not only focus on loving the outcome of it, but you can also learn to love improvement. You know, who doesn't like to get better at something? One of the reasons we usually get pretty stale with something is because we stop seeing progress. You know, if you know that every day that you go in the weight room for the next couple of months, you're going to eke out an extra rep or add a little bit of weight to the bar. Uh, for a lot of people, that improvement uh, actually keeps them going. That's their competitiveness and say, hey, you know, last workout, I did seven pull-ups. I'm going to get eight today. No matter what it takes, I'm going to get eight pull-ups today. And so while they may not enjoy pull-ups, 
they do love that competitiveness with themselves. No wonder you're a mindset coach. Like I'm just, I'm listening to what you're saying and you're so right. Like even for me, for example, this podcast, like my favorite part about doing the podcast is this, you know, just having the one-on-one conversation and then having the episode released when it does and putting out, putting it into the world. I don't necessarily enjoy the editing. I don't necessarily, you know, enjoy putting together all the graphics, but I know it leads to that episode, which gives me satisfaction. So I'm, you know, that's, that's such a great way of putting it. And I actually haven't thought about, about it that way necessarily before. Um, and it also makes me think about another story that you tell very often, which is, uh, you know, a lesser known fact about that camp that you saw um, kind of Kobe in and, and worked with Kobe on, on in that camp. Uh, Steph Curry was there, very young Steph Curry, who, you know, wouldn't leave the gym until he swished five free throws in a row, which is not easy by any stretch of the means at oh, no. all. <laughs> um, so that's, that's super crazy. And I love how you put it that exact way. Yeah. I mean, the standard he was willing to hold himself to. I mean, uh, even somebody that's a pretty accomplished basketball player needs to admit that swishing five in a row is a really tall order and is a very high standard. You know, I mean, for anyone listening that doesn't play basketball, I mean, a swish is a perfect shot. It doesn't touch the rim. It doesn't touch the backboard. So to say I'm not going to leave the gym until I shoot five perfect shots in a row, not just five perfect shots in a row is a really high standard. And uh, I'm certainly not implying that everyone else should adopt that standard. I'm not saying that every basketball player on the planet should not leave the gym until they swish five in a row. What I'm saying is everyone needs to decide what is a standard of excellence that I'm not going to accept anything less than. And for Stephen Curry, who probably at that time already knew that he wanted to go down in history as the greatest shooter the game's ever seen, he decided that was an appropriate standard for him. And everybody needs to do that in any area of life. You know, going back to you with doing MMA and boxing, you know, you need to give a thought to, well, what is the standard of excellence that I want to have anytime I'm in the ring or I'm in the octagon that I want to live up to? And what is some way that I can kind of quantify that and measure that so that I'm not going to leave the gym until I do something like that? And I just think that mindset is really powerful. And, and that's what ultimately led to kind of the, the tagline of, are the habits you have today on par for the dreams you have for tomorrow? Well, clearly, the habits that Steph Curry established way back then were absolutely on par with the player that he is today. And the interesting part about that is when, when you look at your habits and you look at your dreams, there has to be alignment between the two. Because if there's not, one of them needs to change. You either need to improve your habits and standards or you need to lower your dreams. And no one in their right mind will ever you know, look you in the eye or look in the mirror and say, you know what, I just feel like lowering my dreams. No one wants to do that. So no one's willing to budge on this end, which means the only thing you can change is your habits and your standards. And that's, that's good advice for all of us, regardless of what it is that we're trying to improve. It's actually super crazy. That, that tagline uh, that are the habits that you have today on par with the dreams that you have for tomorrow. I have said that before on this podcast and it's written on my whiteboard at home in Ottawa for the longest time. That was the only thing I had on my board because, you know, it's, it's so true. It's, it, it can be easy to have a big vision for the future, right? What we want and what we do. But if we don't reverse engineer that process and kind of put together the daily habits that could eventually lead to that, it can get tougher and tougher to get there. Uh, there's one thing about the law of attraction, but the law of attraction only works if you put in action, right? Yes. Um, so I love that. I love that tagline so much. It's amazing. Now, you know, the players that you work with, the business, business leaders that you work with, highly influential, um, one of the things that makes them so great is their ability to be present. 
and you did a TED talk about this, uh, this phrase of being where your feet are. What does that mean uh, in the context of being present? And just for clarification, so your your listeners know, I'm not the one that came up with the phrase, be where your feet are. I heard it from two different sources. I heard it from Oprah Winfrey, and I heard it from Nick Saban, the uh, renowned football coach for Alabama football. Um, but there was something about that that really resonated with me. The way that that was, you know, linguistically, the way that phrase came out just really hit me between the eyes. Uh, I've been talking about living present and playing present for well over a decade, uh, something else that I had learned from someone else. But when I heard that for the first time, it just made sense. Mm -hmm. And basically it just means wherever your feet are, so wherever you are in the physical, make sure that's where you are mentally and emotionally as well. And at first glance, most people think, well, yeah, how could you be anywhere else? Uh, until you start thinking, especially of all the digital distractions that we have in this world and how easy it is to be with someone but not really be with someone because your mind is somewhere else. And in order for you to be a high performer in any area of your life, you need to get the mental, the physical, and the emotional all in alignment. Those things all need to be working together. And as soon as you are not where your feet are, you know, you're, you're in a business meeting, but you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or thinking about your kids or you're on vacation with your kids, but you keep thinking about that proposal you have to do, then you're not giving the people or the task at hand your full attention, which is what's required for high performance. I'm super guilty of that. I'm, I'm actually very guilty. And I think a lot of my generation in particular is very guilty because as you said, we have the digital distractions, phones available all the time, social media is available all the time. And, you know, it'll be sometimes the case where I'm watching like a basketball game, but I'll also be on my phone and it's like, oh, someone scored. Yay. But also go back to my phone. Like that's, that's how bad it is. And I know attention is a huge, huge part of that uh, formula, that, that, that concept. What, how would you coach you know, someone through that who does have those attention issues of staying focused on one thing for, for, you know, lengthy periods of time. Well, well, there's two things I'd recommend right from the beginning. Uh, one, and if, if anyone has not read Atomic Habits by James Clear, uh, it's a must read. It's one of my favorite books, incredibly impactful books. Uh, James, James is a fellow speaker and a friend and a great guy, but really great book. And, and he talks a lot about the environment that you create has a lot to do with with your habits. And he's so right. Uh, so in that example, and, and please know, uh, make sure you give yourself some grace and compassion. You're not the only one that struggles with being present. You're not the only one that checks your phone in between buckets during a basketball game. I mean, many people are guilty of that. Um, so acknowledging that and realizing you're not alone is certainly important. Uh, but then you just have to ask yourself, okay, well, how can I restructure my environment that would make it less likely for me to do that? Well, the obvious answer is put your phone in another room while you're watching the game. I mean, you, you simply cannot check your phone uh, if it's in another room. Or if you choose to, you literally have to get up and walk to the other room. So that would decrease the chances of you checking your phone. Uh, if you want to keep your phone on you because you're, you're expecting a call or you're worried about something else, you could turn all of your notifications off. Um, you know, so that way you have to literally check your phone. It's not going to vibrate or buzz or beep or whatever your phone does. So there's different things that you could do that would increase the chance that you will not be distracted by something. You know, right now during this call, uh, I don't have any, any windows open on my browser. I don't have my email up. I'm not doing anything in the world right now except staring at this webcam, aiming to deliver high value for you and your listeners. Um, because if I have these other things going on, 
I can get distracted just like anybody else. If something's beeping over here, I have social media up or I keep looking, you know, I'll be just as guilty of that as anyone else. So because I've decided that my attention to you and your listeners is the most important thing to me during this hour, then I've, I've structured an environment that won't allow me to do that. Uh, the second thing I'd recommend is having some type of mindfulness practice. Uh, something that, that this is very similar to what we we're talking about before, you know, going back to the basics and figuring out what's something that you can do to help eliminate the temptation of being distracted. Um, no one is perfect with this. Uh, even if you were to talk to a, a Tibetan monk, they're not present every moment of every day. Now they're most likely much more present than you and I are on a consistent right. basis, but they're not perfect. Uh, for me, every single morning after I make my bed, the very first thing I do is I follow a 10-minute guided meditation using the Headspace app. And for 10 minutes, uh, my goal is to be as present, as grounded, and as aware and as mindful as I can be for that 10 minutes. And I consider that a practice. I consider that just as important to physical exercise or reading a book or listening to a podcast. You know, uh, that's really, really important to me. So I've prioritized it. It is literally the second thing I do every day after I make my bed. So uh, being able to do that consistently has started to strengthen that muscle. Now you better believe that even in that 10 minutes, I still get distracted. My thoughts will still wander to something else or I'll briefly think of, oh, that, you know, that call I've got to do in just a little bit. So I'm not perfect with it, but consistently I've made progress. I am more aware and mindful during that 10 minutes now than I was when I first started. Uh, at the time of this recording, as of this morning, uh, I've done 1,126 straight days of starting my day with a mindful meditation using the Headspace app. Um, so now, I mean, it's really starting to build that muscle. Uh, what a lot of people do, they, they say, Alan, you know, I tried doing Headspace, uh, I tried it this week and it just doesn't work. It's like, well, <laughs> you have to give it longer than a week. Yeah. You know? I mean, you, you know, you're not gonna get good at boxing in one week. You're not going to get good at MMA or basketball or fitness for that matter. Not in one week. You have to be willing to uh, be a little bit more consistent with that. Uh, but I really and truly believe if you structure your environment appropriately and you have a mindfulness practice that you do habitually, you will decrease, you know, uh, the, the shiny object syndrome of, of always letting your attention divert to other things. Absolutely. And I've talked about meditation a, a lot before on the show. And with the thing about meditation, especially for beginners, it's hard. Like it's not easy oh, so by hard. any means. Um, you, you know, the focus is very difficult because your head's all over the place, especially when your eyes are closed. Um, but the other aspect is like, it just forces you to think about things that, you know, sometimes you might get overwhelmed. Like I have this to do, I have that to do, blah, 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 blah. But you, once you give it a chance and you do it consistently, like you said, like, all practices are not comfortable necessarily at the beginning. Working out isn't always a comfortable process. We're not oh, supposed no. to necessarily enjoy it at all times of the day. But yeah, if, it'll, it'll yeah. actually make you incredibly uncomfortable. And, but, but to me, that's a good thing um, because in my mind, my perspective was there's really something wrong with me if I'm uncomfortable sitting in silence with my own thoughts for 10 minutes. Like that should not be as torturous as it was when I first started. So my goal was to stick with it until it wasn't as torturous and, and that it was something that was much more palatable. But even this day, you know, well over a thousand consecutive days in, I still have good days with it and I still have bad days with it. So uh, I don't worry about perfection. I just worry about progress. And consistently, I'm better at the guided meditation now 
than I was before consistently. And that's what's most important. And, and I tell you, when folks are thinking, well, how does this actually help you? It's not even just the acute distractions that we face. It's not just you're watching a basketball game and you also want to check Instagram. It's also being able to have the emotional control to stay, uh, have some type of base level. And that base and that threshold of tolerance, I've raised significantly over the last few years. And, and what I'm saying is, I mean, I can't think of the last time that I've gotten rattled or frazzled or bent out of shape over anything. Like I'm much more level now because I have that control over my temperament. Now, yes, I absolutely get disappointed or feel angry or get in low moods or feel frustrated. I'm not immune to those things, nor do I want to be. You know, I have those emotions for a reason. They're part of our emotional palette for a reason, but I don't let those things overrun my life. You know, I'm not one of those people that if somebody cuts me off in traffic, you know, I just go bonkers and I, it's ruined my day. And I think a lot of that has to do with the mindfulness practice. You know, I've raised my base level of consciousness so that I'm much more even keel with anything that can come my way. And I'm so thankful that I've done that um, because I've been able to weather this global pandemic in pretty good spirits. You know, I mean, I'm a professional keynote speaker. Most of my business got decimated five months ago when we were, you know, we're no longer allowed to speak in person at events. And, and I didn't dwell on that. I just said, all right, next play. What's another way that I could be of service to people? Cause I still want to pour into others during this time. And that's opened up so many different doors for a variety of different things I'm working on now. Um, so while yes, there were certainly some times of disappointment with engagements being canceled. There were certainly times where I was a little bit anxious about, well, when is speaking going to come back? There were times where I was sad that I wasn't able to do what I love to do so much, but I didn't let those things, you know, rattle me or frazzle me. I just said, okay, I just got to move on to the next play. And, and a lot of that stems from this daily practice. So I can tell you, uh, having lived it, that if you're willing to make that type of commitment consistently over time, it will absolutely pay dividends. That's so great that you were able to stay kind of level set even after, like, like you said, professional speaker and it all kind of got taken away in a snap, um, which, which is nuts. And, and obviously it's affected a lot of people's businesses, but being able to stay level set during that time is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So, you know, congratulations on that. And, and, I, and I'd actually like to explore that further. So, you know, this show is all about winning, but we also explore the habits that kind of help you recover from losses and failure. And I've never admitted this before to anybody, but you know, something I still regret to this day actually was, um, and something I think about all the time, um, was a volleyball tournament that I had in, in high school. Um, and we had made it to the semifinals. I had just, I didn't have, you know, a whole lot of money to spend on, on sports. Um, but put together the money and it had invested in like a volleyball camp, um, to be better for that particular playoff series. And for some reason I was power. And for some reason I couldn't hit the ball over the net. I just kept hitting it into the net, into the net, into the net. And at some point I asked the coach to sub me off because I didn't want to put the team in jeopardy. And to this day, I feel regret about that to this day. I feel embarrassed about that, but it was, it was a major loss. And I was, I had a hard time getting myself back into, okay, you're a winner. You're winning. You know, you got to be in a winning mindset. How do you coach influential business leaders, basketball players, et cetera, through recovering from failures, losses, you know, broken businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Well, well, the first thing I do is I try to teach them to detach themselves from the outcome. You know, clearly in sports, I mean, 
the goal of every team sport is to have more points than the other team by the end of the game. I mean, that's how you win by definition. But instead of being so attached to that, I try to get folks to focus much more on the process and what are the micro steps that need to be taken to increase the chance that you'll get that win. And I found that when you learn to love the process and you're willing to do those micro steps, uh, you increase the chance that you'll get the outcome that you want. Um, but in the event that you don't, then you have right in front of you, you have an opportunity for growth. You have an opportunity to learn something. You know, in, in sport, you can literally step back and go, okay, why did we lose this game? Now, sometimes the answer is simply the other team was more talented than we were. We played hard. We played smart. We executed. We did everything right. They were simply better than us. And while that will still sting and it still sucks to lose, at least you can rest your head on your pillow going, we did everything within our control. They were simply better. And I know from maturity and life experience, uh, those will dis that, that, that sting will dissipate pretty quickly when you can say that. It's when you have the what ifs, the, the woulda, coulda, shouldas. You know, well, what if we would have played harder? What if we would have had a better week of practice leading up to this? What if I would have been a better communicator or a better teammate? What if I would, that's when you start, you know, that's when you can start to build in that type of regret. So whether it's in business or sport, I try to get them to detach from the outcome, learn to focus on the process, pour into that process with effort, with a great attitude and with consistency. And then whatever happens, be prepared to learn from that. If you end up getting the outcome you want, you know, you smash your sales quota or you win the state championship, go back and unpack it and say, okay, what were the things that I or we did really, really well that we want to keep doing? Because we want to do more of what works. But then we also want to make sure we unpack the things that maybe we could have done better or done differently or what were some opportunities for growth because we want to do less of the things that don't work. So anytime you don't get the outcome that you want, if you can depersonalize it and not get too upset by it, keep that level set mentality that we just talked about and say, okay, if we were going to play this game over, or if I had a chance to make this sales call again, what would I do differently and really break it down? And if you learn from that, consider that a win in and of itself, because now the next time you play a game or the next time you make that sales call, you're armed with better information that will get you closer to getting the outcome that you wanted originally. Right. And what, what I really enjoy about that is the fact that you talked about both, you know, observing what you did in a loss, but also when you're successful, like when you, uh, oftentimes we celebrate success, which as we should, it's good to celebrate success, but it's also important to deconstruct what led us to that success. You know, like you said, I'm, I'm in sales. And so, you know, after a sales call or after a day of meetings, I might be like, okay, why did I get more meetings today than any other days? What was the email that I sent out? What, what was the lines that I used over the phone? just as an example, but you can take this at any, you know, profession, any sport, et cetera, et cetera, is like analyzing what makes us, makes us successful just as much as what happens when we take a loss. And, you know, you have worked with so many people across the NBA, across different sports teams. Um, again, you, you work with a lot of businesses and, and entrepreneurs in their, in their business. If there was one kind of most impactful routine or habit that these individuals are doing, what would be your observation on that? Like, what is the, the major thing that all of these or most of these individuals are doing that help them, you know, achieve the high performance they do? 
Well, they all have a very clear understanding of the difference between preparation and performance and not just the difference, but the relationship between preparation and performance. And, and clearly at the risk of sounding con, you know, condescending, uh, the more you put into your preparation, the more likely you'll perform well. You know? and, and they all understand that, which means they are relentless during the unseen hours that allow them to perform at the highest level. Uh, most of us intuitively understand that with sport. You know, you've got the big championship game coming up on Saturday. So we're going to practice as much as we can and we're going to watch film and we're going to do all of the things that will increase the chance we'll be successful on Saturday. But, but how about, let's even use your situation with sales. Like how much time are you spending? And I'm not asking you to answer this. This would be anyone that's in sales. How much time are you spending uh, during the unseen hours preparing for your sales calls? or preparing for the proposals that you're gonna you know, send in? Uh, do you get a friend and do any type of role playing prior to making an important sales call? You know, do you work with folks that might be able to help you punch up some of your emails that will increase the chance that you'll get that meeting? How much due diligence and research do you do on the prospect that you're reaching out to? You know, are you gonna be asking them a series of questions that you could have gotten in two minutes just by looking at their website or social media? So how much preparation are you doing to be great on game day, which in that case would be the actual sales call or the sales meeting. And most people that are honest, they don't do a whole lot on the preparation side. You know, they, they just leave it to chance and high performers simply don't do that. You know, I've been around some people that can sell at a very high clip. They're world renowned sales professionals and they prepare for their sales calls or, or their meetings with the same vigor and attention that a Kobe would prepare for, you know, game two of an NBA final. So that's really what, what separates high performers is what are they willing to do during the unseen hours to prepare so that they can show up as their best self. Yep. And that's, you said that so well, and, you know, preparation also, I find means sacrifice. Like you have to agree that Kobe did a ton, made a ton of sacrifice to ultimately perform the way he did. And you have to be willing to put some things on the wayside to put that preparation in and ultimately achieve those results. Like you said, during the unseen hours, right? We might be measured between nine to five, but what are we doing between five to nine in order to prepare for that nine to five and, and be you know, in the high performance mindset for that? Um, Absolutely. Well, that, that reminds me, you know, as a keynote speaker, uh, many people, and, and I'm certainly not going to disclose my fees, not like they're a big deal, but, but I get paid a, a fairly decent amount to go speak to organizations. And usually someone will say, man, I can't believe you get paid that much money to be on stage for one hour. I'm like, whoa, 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 <laughs> I will be on stage for one hour. That is my game. But if you think that the only time that I spend investing in that particular event is one hour, you're sorely mistaken. I mean, I do a pre-event call uh, where I spend time asking the client question after question to find out what their pain points are, what their struggles are. What is it they need from me during that presentation to, to really hit the mark? What do they want their team to be able to do after I'm done speaking? What type of actionable takeaways would be most valuable for them? I do an extensive deep dive into the company itself, into their culture, uh, to the way they're structured. I do my best to learn their terminology so that I can go on stage and talk about their core values, not my core values. So I spend a good deal of time just on an acute level preparing for that. Not to mention all of the time that I'll spend rehearsing and going through it. So for any one hour that I'm going to be on stage, dozens and dozens of hours have been poured into that specific event. Now, 
when you still divide what I get paid by dozens and dozens of hours, it's still a good living. I'm not knocking what I get paid. I'm, I'm compensated very well, but mm -hmm. it's not to the tune of what someone would think I'm making for one hour of work. And then on top of that, it's also important to understand that I'm not even just being paid for what I'm bringing to that one event. I'm also being compensated for the breadth of experience and expertise that I have having done this for over 20 years now. So on some level, Someone's paying me for the time that I spent working at Montrose with Kevin Durant, working at DeMatha with Victor Oladipo, working the Kobe Bryant Skills Academy or being around Stephen Curry. They're also compensating me for everything that I had done back then. And all of that stuff together is what allows me to charge what I charge to be on stage for one hour. Yeah. And it's a high income skill and like, you know, pub public speaking, uh, sales, being a high performance coach, like they're high income skills because they require more preparation to get the job done. It's not like any high, high income skill out there is the easiest thing in the world because it's definitely not. You need to put the time in uh, to get there. Now, with that being said, let's jump into the quick win segment of the episode where we explore bite-sized tips, tools, and tricks that will help you find your next win. So the first quick win, which book has had the most impact on you personally? Uh, Leading from the Heart by Coach K. Love that. What is your most valuable possession? Well, I don't want to call my kids possessions, but I do have three <laughs> children and they are certainly the most important thing in my life. But if I actually had to break it down to the most important possession, it's actually sitting right here and it's a letter that I received from Coach K uh, back in 2008. It was a handwritten letter that he wrote in response to a letter that I wrote him after the first time of meeting him. And, and this is incredibly important to me. That's so amazing. And for those of you who are listening who don't know, uh, Coach K is the head coach of Duke University's basketball team, one of the most revered um, you know, basketball teams in, uh, in the United States and, and across the world. And he's probably the most revered coach, top five of all time, like at all uh, up there with Phil Jackson, Greg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm certainly biased, but I mean, he's the all time winningest coach in the history of, of college basketball in the United States. And I would put him toe to toe with Phil Jackson or John Wooden or Bill Belichick or anybody else that's won in their respective sports at a high clip. I still put coach K on that Mount Rushmore alongside some of those other phenomenal coaches. That's so amazing. And it says a lot about you, though, that, uh, you know, the first, like you said, although you, you don't want to say possession that you write it and we immediately thought about your kids. So, um, you know, bless that as well. Um, what does your daily morning routine look like? I know you mentioned that you get up and, and you meditate, but what is what does the full routine usually look like? So I'm an early riser by nature, um, which also means I'm not a night owl, you know, for the most part. Uh, by 9.30, 10 o'clock, you know, I'm, I'm pretty conked out for the day. I'm, I'm mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausted. And I usually put myself to bed at a pretty good time, uh, which means I naturally wake up anywhere between 5.30 and 7 in the morning. Uh, I don't set an alarm. Uh, I only set an alarm a handful of times a year, and that's only when I have a flight that leaves before 8 a.m. I just set it as a fail-safe to make sure I don't miss my flight. But I'm, a I'm an early riser anyway. Uh, so I get up. The very first thing I do is make my bed. I believe in starting my day with a very small act of discipline to start creating some momentum. Uh, the very next thing I do is the Headspace guided meditation app. Uh, right after that, I, I hydrate, drink some water, and then usually try to do something physically active. 
sometimes that's going for a run. Sometimes that's doing some strength training or calisthenics. Sometimes that's just foam rolling and doing some yoga poses. But I try to get my body moving a little bit. Um, and then I just see what the rest of the day is going to look like. Uh, you know, my goal is outside of using the app on my phone, uh, I don't check my email, my text messages or my social media for the first 60 minutes after I wake up. Uh, I want to create a foundation of doing these other things first before I start diving into any of that. And, and I find if, you know, in the first 60 minutes of my day, if I can kind of turn on the juices mentally, physically, and emotionally, then I'm ready to take on the day and I'm ready to be the best version of myself. So my morning routine is really important to me and it's very consistent. You know, it's not, I don't just do this when I'm at home and then when I travel, I do whatever I feel. No, this is what I do no matter where I am. Yeah, love that routine. And it sets the standard, sets the stage for the day. I still, I'm still working on that, not trying to look at the phone for the first 60 minutes. Really, I should probably turn off all the notifications or put my phone on airplane mode or something, but still working that out. But I love that. Um, if you want to learn more about Alan and his work, you can check him out at alansteinjr.com. And you can also check out his profile on LinkedIn. He's also got a book out, like I mentioned earlier, called Raise Your Game, which digs into the high performance secrets from the best of the best. And he has an upcoming book, which was just announced. So I'll keep you guys updated on that as it, as it releases called Sustain Your Game, which is about you know, exploring, maintaining that high performance for throughout the long term. Now, before we part ways, Alan, you know, this is such an awesome episode. I enjoyed it a lot. If you could impart one lesson to my listeners that would help them create their next big win, what would that be? Decide what it is that you want. And, and this could be, uh, it could be a goal, uh, you know, a sales quota, or you want to run a race. It could be something like that, or it could be something a little bit more abstract. Uh, I'll speak in the first person and use myself, and then your listeners can decide how they want to use that. But uh, I'm 44 years old. I have this vision of the man that I want to be 20 years from now. So who do I want the 64-year-old Alan to be? And I simply uh, can tell you that I want the 64-year-old Alan to be someone that's physically, mentally, and emotionally fit. Uh, I want the 64-year-old Alan to have a great relationship with his children and his family and his friends and his most trusted clients and colleagues. And I want the 64-year-old Alan to be doing what he considers meaningful work in service of others. And every decision I make in my life right now, I try to make sure it is in alignment with becoming that person. So everything I do from what I eat for lunch to who I follow on Instagram, I ask myself, is this going to take me closer to being that guy or is this going to take me further away? Is this going to increase my chance of being that guy or is it going to decrease it? And you can see if you wanted to, you, you have a sales goal. You know, I want to sell 100 units by the end of the month. Well, is the decision on how you're going to spend your time right now going to take you closer to selling 100 of those things or is it going to take you further away? You know, is getting up in the morning and having a routine and getting some exercise, is that going to increase the chance that you'll have the sustained energy to sell 100 of those things or not? And then the goal is just to make sure that your uh, answering is, is in the positive as often as possible, that the vast majority of things you do consistently is in alignment with what it is that you're trying to achieve. And don't get stifled by perfection, get motivated by progress. You'll make some boneheaded mistakes, you'll have some lapses in judgment. Occasionally you'll pick something that is not in alignment with what you're trying to achieve or who you want to be. Just quickly move on to the next play. So whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, Run it through that binary filter in every decision you make and you'll be designing your own future. 
Alan Stein Jr. This was such a great time. I had, I had a wonderful time discussing, you know, all the things about mindset, mindset, success habits, uh, you know, high performance. I, I really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners enjoy it. And uh, really excited to just, just put this one out there. So thank you again so much for coming on to the Winning Streaks podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. You have a wonderful rest of your day. You as well. All right. Bye-bye.